episode 338 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. And no, David. Ah. So, so I went on a work trip this week and I got back uh, Wednesday and I had a doctor's appointment Friday morning and I forgot to go to the, uh, to the blood lab to get my blood drawn uh, the week before I left on a trip. And so mm. I went to the lab basically as soon as I got home which was really nice because uh, when they run blood work, they just always run a PCR COVID test. So yeah. I went on a trip and I didn't have to do a rapid test. I got to do an actual PCR test. And then I went to the doctor Friday for this appointment. I had already delayed it months and months. Just I had to keep pushing it back as things were coming up. And uh, it's it actually turns out is really good that I did because they started stocking and preparing Pfizer vaccines on Monday. And so because oh. because I was there this week and not last week, when I went to go get my checkup, they were able to give me my COVID booster, which my ADHD brain has found it very difficult to schedule. So I got a <laughs> surprise vaccine this week. Uh, and the, the best part of the surprise is I had no side effects, unlike the first two. I'm really yeah, I'm I'm good to go. My arm, my arm was super sore. Actually, it's still sore now that I I press on it. It is still sore, uh, not as bad. But yeah, I didn't have any any you know flu symptoms at all, uh, which is pretty cool because I got the COVID uh, jab in one arm and then the influenza jab in the other arm. So I got I got flu and COVID at the same time, and I was like, oh man, this could be a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well that's great that you uh you were able to cruise through it no problem that's yeah not bad huh wow that's the best kind of surprise vaccine i guess <laughs> all right well we have a short show for you today we're going to completely skip the the main news segments and we're going to go straight to short and sweet so dennis what's our first one? First up astra to launch next from cape canaveral Astrospace announced that its next launch, carrying a set of NASA CubeSats, will take place from Slick 46 at the Cape. Originally built for tests of the submarine-launched Trident missile, the pad is now operated by Space Florida and has been recently used to test the launch abort system for the Orion spacecraft. Astra's launch will be for NASA's Venture Class Launch Services, or VCLS, program, carrying the Alana 41 payload of five CubeSats, four of which are from universities, with the fifth from Johnson Space Center. To date, all of Ash's launches have been from the Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska, with the upcoming Florida launch moving the company closer to their goal of multiple launch locations. Uh, next, SpaceX gets FCC approval for Starship launch and starts construction on their launch pad. The FCC has recently granted SpaceX a license to conduct their orbital test flight of the full Starship Super Heavy stack. The application shows a launch window from December 20th of this year to March 1st of 2022. However, the company is waiting on the results from an FAA environmental assessment expected by the end of the year before it can launch. Meanwhile, construction crews have begun work on the first Starship launch pad in Florida at Kennedy Space Center's Historic Launch Complex 39A. Located just southeast of the existing SpaceX pad for Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy launches, construction technically started in 2019, 
Spain, but has been halted for years to focus on infrastructure at the Starbase facility in South Texas. Next up, NASA investigates Ingenuity Helicopter's transmission problem. While the small Mars helicopter Ingenuity has continued operating well beyond its initially planned number of flights, the aircraft had encountered a radio communications issue on its recent successful 17th flight. In particular, the comm link between the helicopter and Perseverance rover was lost during Ingenuity's descent. 15 minutes after the touchdown, telemetry was successfully transmitted to the rover, indicating that the flight electronics and battery of Ingenuity were healthy. A combination of factors, including the orientation of the two vehicles and a nearby hill that may have been disruptive, likely contributed to the issue. The Ingenuity team is now looking into recovering the missing data from when the link was broken, and if the helicopter passes a final health assessment, it could fly again within a couple weeks. And fourthly, SpaceX Crew-5 to fly with a cosmonaut. The first cosmonaut to fly on a commercial crew flight has been selected by Roscosmos. Anna Kikina will fly to the ISS in the fall of 2022, likely on board the Crew-5 mission with Commander Nicole Duke-Mann, pilot Josh Cassida, and mission specialist Koichi Wakata. While details are currently scarce, consisting of a single tweet by Roscosmos head Dmitry Rogozin, it has been confirmed that this will be part of a swap with a NASA astronaut flying on a later Soyuz mission. It may also be that this comes a little premature, with a NASA spokesman commenting that the agencies are still working on finalizing the details of the agreement. All right, boy, I feel like I'm talking a lot in this episode, but we have arrived at this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have a single winner as far as I can see, and that would be the Greek. Um, and it wasn't a one guess, one winner week. We had a couple of people who guessed incorrectly, uh, which means this clue was just perfectly dialed into that sweet spot. Uh, the clue uh, for this week was two tickets. I mean, uh, just one ticket to space, please. This is delightful to me. So this week in spaceflight history is the 15th of December, 1976. It was the launch of Cosmos 881 and Cosmos 882. So these two vehicles, they have a lot of interesting things associated with them. The, the clue is actually referencing something that's not unique to these two, um, but I, I thought it you know, it works pretty well because there weren't any other, uh, VAs launched, uh, in, in this week. So I, I think it, I think it's okay to, to be a little ambiguous, but yeah, like, like, uh, like I said, these are VA, uh, spacecraft. Interestingly enough, while Roscosmos refers to them as VAs here in the West, we call them Mercures. And that's mm. absolutely wrong. The reason that we call them Mercures is because um, the Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Museum has one on display and they mistranslated uh, the documentation that arrived with the vehicle. And uh, so they put the, the label that's up is Mercure spacecraft and it, it's not. And I, I kind of love that it, that Smithsonian is so influential that they make a mistake. And that's just de facto the way that we refer to it uh, in the wild. U.S. Isn't that great? Huh. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not great, but it, it is interesting at the very least. Um, and uh, 
Dennis, you, David, and me, and also uh, Richard Durden, we all saw this vehicle together at the Air and Space Museum back in 2019. Mm. And I did not understand its uh, its significance. It's uh, it's nomenclatural significance. Mm -hmm. It's a really, I think it's a beautiful spacecraft. It is um, very stark. Uh, it has a visible uh, weld bead up at the top. Um, but it, it's, it's just, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's like somebody wanted to model a spacecraft and only had access to primitives and they threw this thing together. So it is a, uh, a biconic, uh, reentry, uh, vehicle. So biconic is the shape of the, uh, Apollo, uh, command module. The, the only thing is that the sides are a little less sloped. Uh, than Apollo and the ring at the top is, is quite wide. So, uh, you know, Apollo just has a very narrow place on, on the cone that's truncated, right? You like chop off a cone, you kind of get the shape. Uh, and, and this is truncated, uh, in a quite a wide fashion. It reminds me a bit of how, uh, Gemini had a lot more sure. stuff at the nose than, uh, Apollo did. Um, yeah. And, and the, the, actual reentry vehicle like the the thing that is on display uh the the capsule portion of it uh is is very flat at the top but va is sort of a, an odd uh, an oddly configured vehicle it almost has a service module above it and below it and what you're referring to is is the no the the front compartment um and it yeah it's it's got junk in the nose trunk junk in the frunk there we go <laughs> and the no compartment it is quite tall it houses the deorbit block so the the deorbit uh uh engines um it has some extra batteries it has all of the communications equipment it also has the parachutes um i'm not sure how much of it was ejected during re-entry like i don't know exactly how much of this thing hit the ground it's it's really tough to hmm. research these early uh russian vehicles i'm sure somebody knows i'm sure somebody in the chat will tell me before we're done <laughs> but uh but as of right now i don't know and uh va is it, it was originally envisioned as the the moon vehicle right this is the thing that was going to go to the moon and as such, it's more advanced than Soyuz. I, actually, I think there was there was even a Soyuz vehicle that was uh, proposed as a moon fly around vehicle. Um, but VA was sort of the the actual livable thing you could go to the moon in. And it really seems like it would have been a more comfortable ride uh, than the Apollo CSM. We'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the vehicle was was more advanced than Soyuz. It had um, a, a, a sort of an upgraded heat shield. It's, it, as far as I can tell, it's a, it's a totally different design, not just an upgrade. But the heat shield itself was intended to be reusable. Uh, and in practice, it actually did turn out to be reusable, which is pretty cool. The VA also had uh, more advanced uh, sensor systems for landing. Just like Soyuz, it also has engines that soften its landing. And the, the two systems that are involved sound oddly complex. I, I don't know how they worked. And, and Dennis, maybe you, you have an instinct here and you can help me out. Um, but it's called the, the Kratos gamma ray altimeter, which has a subsystem called the probe, the probe key, uh, radioactive sensor system. 
And I have no idea why you would use gamma rays for altimetry. And I have no idea why you would use a radioactive sensor system for altimetry. Like radar is the way that you would go today. Do you have any idea how gamma rays could be used to do this? I'm not aware of that <laughs> uh, being done before. I, gamma rays, they could have higher resolution in a sense. But but they should be really bad for this. They're harder to, to create and they don't reflect as well, right? It, ga gamma rays don't, don't reflect off of dirt that well, I don't think. Like, don't they tend to pass through a lot of dirt before they reflect? So, so some of them do backscatter, evidently. Uh, I, I got to admit, like, <laughs> I... I, yeah. I I don't know the properties of gamma rays with <laughs> soil <laughs> uh, and the, or, you know, the, 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 the Kazakh steppes. But, uh, <laughs> so Deathkin is asking in the chat, is, is VA an initialism in Russian slash Cyrillic? And so uh, it is a uh, the romanization of the Russian, uh, but uh, it stands, it's, I wish David was here, but Vozrachaini <laughs> Apparat. Uh, which means return vehicle. And so that's where the VA comes from. So that's that's a little bit of talk about the, the landing system. For uh, um, for this flight, this is called LVI-1. Uh, for, for this mission, they also uh, added additional um, telemetry equipment because there weren't people on board. This was an uncrewed flight. And uh, I, I guess that's that's some specificity if we go back a little general um va um was capable of about 24 hours worth of free flight the the on-orbit uh lifespan changed depending on it, it increased as they uh went through different versions um but 24 hours is you know not a heck of a lot of time on orbit so you can also add like a second service module but also it okay so maybe maybe va is more like an upside down soyuz right so soyuz from top to bottom you've got the orbital module the re-entry module and the service module uh here we have the service module up at the top the re-entry module in the middle and then down at the bottom is the orbital module maybe that's a better way to think about it um and so the the orbital module is an FGB, a functional cargo block. Um, and it seems weird um, to put an FGB below another vehicle because FGB has pressurized crew area that you can go and hang out in. Um, and it's like, oh, I think it's double the volume of the VA capsule itself. So like this really... Yeah. You know, if you're going to go to the moon, you want to go with as much space as you can. And this, this has got a pretty decent amount of space in it. Um, but to get from the capsule to the FGB, you have to go through the heat shield, uh, which is just bizarre. It, <laughs> like mm -hmm. we, we talk about, uh, MOL, the, uh, Gemini, uh, space station and, and how weird that was to have a whole, uh, for somebody to, to walk straight through the, the heat shield. But yeah, uh, VA did it first. Um, not, not that MOL ever really flew. So when you, when you take a VA and you couple it to an FGB, you get a TKS. Um, and I feel like TKS is probably, uh, a more familiar vehicle than VA on its own. However, more VAs flew than TKSs. And 
Oh boy, this is this is such a cool vehicle. I I, I wish that it had uh, been more successful than it was. So uh, TKS was originally intended uh, to be the moon vehicle, and, and pretty quickly that wound up getting cut. So then they decided that it should be an Almaz uh, service vehicle, uh, taking crew and supplies up to Almaz space stations. Um, and the initial plan was to fly an Almaz with a TKS attached, um, which which makes a lot of sense. You know, you get your people up to the space station right away, assuming that they were going to fly it crude. I'm not hundred percent sure if they were. Um, but, uh, unfortunately the combination of Almaz and TKS was too heavy for proton to launch. So they decided to fly them separately, which is really interesting. This is a very complicated nexus of, uh, space development here because at that point they had already decided that Soyuz was going to be going to Almaz. And so what they did was they, they made plans. I don't know if they ever actually did this, but at very least they planned to fly Almaz's with a Soyuz port at one end and a TKS port at the other end because they didn't have a unified, uh, docking system at that point. Um, so you could, you could fly two different crewable vehicles, uh, to an Almaz. It, it seems over-designed, uh, and it, it just seems kind of bizarre, but you know, this is, this is during the scramble for space. So it, it, it's totally sensible that you'd get weird configurations popping up like this all over the place. All right. So, uh, let's, let's get a little more specific about the LVI one mission. There are time zones involved, which is always a danger sign, right? Red flag, red flag. And so, uh, one of the, one of the best sources is from astronautics.com uh, and they report a launch at 0400 and, and they report a launch at 0400 and then a landing at 0300. Um, the landing is specified to be in GMT. The launch is not specified. So I'm going to assume that the launch happened at 0400 local time, which is GMT plus five for Baikonur. And the landing, uh, is then in GMT four hours later, five, five hours later, four hours later. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, this, uh, the, these beans have already been spilled a little bit, but you'll notice that there are two, if the mission is LVI one and LVI one launched cosmos, 881, 882, there are two VAs on board this Proton. Yeah, it's weird. So they they are frantically trying to get the VA vehicle ready to go. And so they decide, uh, let's go ahead and test just the VA, uh, not the FGB. I guess they were more confident in the FGB, or maybe they just understood that the VA was... <laughs> The, the really critical part because it has to re-enter. So they said, well, why don't we just toss the FGB and just launch the VA on its own? And then we have room for a second VA, which is truly bizarre, in my opinion, to fly two re-entry vehicles <laughs> at the same time. Like how, how weird is this? Yeah. And their orientation, very surprising. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like their orientation makes a lot of sense. So, uh, for the listener who's not looking at the at the photos in the show notes, the two vehicles are just stacked on top of each other. And and what is weird is that the upper vehicle has a launch escape tower and the lower vehicle does not. But because the NO section 
is so long, it looks like they both have launch escape towers. Uh, they don't. <laughs> yeah. So, so this seems like the most reasonable configuration. I would think that a, a less reasonable configuration would be to fly them side by side or with one upside down or something. What, what are you thinking, Dennis? Well, yeah, I, I would think so, right? So you've got the lower spacecraft tapers to its narrow, uh, what was that frontmost <laughs> module called? <laughs> NO. The NO. And then from there, sitting right above the NO is, again, this discontinuity where you now have the large, wide service section yeah. of the upper vehicle. And so the Russians, where I should say the Soviets were not afraid of flying some things upside down, evidently. Uh, Polius, <laughs> yeah, I think, right. was one yeah. uh, notable example. So why not have the service sections uh, back to back? But, you but know, to like butt. But the butt, like uh, the Contra, the cover uh, art for Contra, the Nintendo game. Is is this the second Contra reference in a month? Could be. I probably <laughs> do it so often I don't even recognize when I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think I think it makes sense to fly them in the orientation that they're actually going to fly in. But it's it's going to be the the base level of weird is already fairly high, right? Okay. So these two vehicles, um, VA-009 was on top, I'm pretty sure, and VA-009A was on the bottom. 009A was Cosmos uh, 881, and so 009-NO-A was 882. Um, the vehicle that these flew on was a Proton, but it was a special configuration of Proton called 82LB72. Uh, the, that is a sequence of letters and numbers that you will never have to reference ever again, that not too many of these guys mm -hmm. flew. And in fact, it was pretty darn hard to find images of the uh, 82LB72 configuration. So Deathkin in the chat says, is this the first example of a rideshare mission? And to that, I say, get out. <laughs> <laughs> That's very silly. Note says uh, in crossed out <laughs> font that's been crossed out. Uh, Proton is used to flying things upside down like the flight computer. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> that's boy, a clever note. <laughs> it, is, it is a comedy club in the chat today. Uh, so, right. They uh, launched a 400, landed an hour earlier. Uh, so, so a four hour flight, you know, this is, this is a good, like eight orbits or something. And, uh, they, they both landed successfully, like fairly, uh, unnotably, which is cool. Uh, I, I like being able to say that and having no additional information. Um, but, but I do want to talk about the rest, uh, of, or, or some additional information about the, the LKS or the, the TKS program history, because, you know, flying two vehicles together is, is an auspicious beginning <laughs> and they continue, uh, with some fairly unexpected things happening. Mm. So after LVI one flew, they went ahead and flew a complete TKS. Um, so, uh, LVI one flew in December of 96. It wasn't until the 17th of July, 1977, that they wound up flying the, the next MA vehicle. And this was a, uh, a, a TKS. Um, so the, the VA and the, the functional cargo block. And this thing flew, um, uncrewed and it, it was a pretty great mission. Uh, they did a lot of on orbit maneuvering. They racked up, uh, nearly 300 meters per second, 
uh, worth of maneuvers. They remained on orbit for 30 days before deorbiting uh, the VA. And then the FGB itself actually stayed on orbit uh, for much longer. It, it stayed on orbit for a total of 201 days. And this is kind of a cool thing, right? FGB uh, has heritage on ISS today. It, this is a, a very capable vehicle, you know, orbital, uh, sm- like a small station almost. Um, just just on its own, it, it has all this capability. So the FGB uh, remained up longer. Yeah, if you ever notice why Zarya and the recent Nauka look so yeah. similar. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so after this TKS launch, um, the next launch was LVI-2. So the TKS launched in July. Uh, LVI-2 launched in August, either the second or the fourth, depending on which source you, uh, you're paying attention to. This was another double VA launch. And what's really fun is you might recognize the serial numbers on these two, uh, 009 and 009A. Uh, yes, it's the same vehicles from the event that I'm talking about, the, the LVI-1 which is the This Week in Spaceflight History event for December. Okay, if 9 and 9A sound familiar, um, uh, let me make things worse by pointing out that they also had alternate designations. Um, 9A uh, is also called um, 9L, and 9, no A, is also called 9P. I don't know why. Uh, however, the vehicles for this mission were designated um, Cosmos uh, 937 and 938, uh, with 937 being the one on top uh, and 938 being the one on the bottom. Uh, they they did not make it very far. Um, the booster actually failed uh, at T plus 49 seconds. As I mentioned before, only one of these two vehicles had a launch abort system. And consequently, only one of them made it out alive. Uh, yeah. So uh, 009 or 009P uh, was successfully pulled away and uh, the, the other VA was lost with the booster. I'd really like to say it exploded with the booster, but I'm not sure how explodey this was before it made it to the ground <laughs> and definitely did explode when it hit the ground. I mean, I don't know, like they, they might've had, uh, the abort system work successfully and it exploded in the air. I don't know. All I know is at some point this thing exploded and that's a, that's a fun thing for the toddler in me <laughs> or the, uh, a pyromaniac, uh, teenager, uh, that's still in the back of my head. So, uh, these abort motors, uh, were designed to max out at 15G, which seems uh, terrifying, but totally reasonable for a launch abort system. However, uh, this failure was enough to convince them not to fly people on the next flight, which was going to happen up until LVI-2 done exploded partially. And I I don't know, like, it, it seems to me that like, if you have a successful abort, Maybe that's a good indication that you can go ahead and fly people on it, especially because the issue is with the booster, not with the with the capsule. Although maybe that is the problem. This degraded their confidence in the booster. But in any event, uh, LVI three then went ahead and flew uh, a couple of months later. It, it was delayed by a good while. Um, I, I'm assuming they were working out bugs. 
Um, but when LVI three, uh, flew, uh, it had two different vehicles that as far as I can tell, hadn't been flown to this point. It was 102P and 102L. And Ben, sorry, just when you're talking about these potential crude, uh, tests, would that mean crude on a proton? Uh-huh. As far, yeah. Uh-huh. That's cool. <laughs> That's a fun If by cool, you mean terrifying, about. but yeah, sure. I, <laughs> I agree. Cool with a hint of terrifying. Oh, and by the way, just, just for my own sanity, cause I, I feel like the gamma ray uh, sensor totally caught me off guard. So gamma rays, right? They're not going to reflect off of things, right? They're going to penetrate. They're going to, yeah. but it's okay. You're not making an image. You don't care about that. Oh, So some okay. of them are going to backscatter and that's all you need to do is just pick up counts of things backscattering and based on that. Well, how do you know that they've reflected off of the surface and not, not penetrated a little bit before they reflected? Well, I guess they don't, yeah, they, they probably don't penetrate dirt all that much. Oh, okay. So yeah, uh, LVI-3 was delayed a couple months, but it had a successful flight. That wasn't enough to convince them to fly people, um, which uh, sounds like it was a good thing. Because LVI-4 had a failure that actually involved the capsule itself. Could have been worse. Still wouldn't want to have people on it. Um, so LVI-4 flew uh, VA-103 and va uh, 008. It, it was initially carrying 103 and 008 because what happened was on their first launch attempt, the booster ignited and then shut down immediately. Like on the pad, hadn't even released the launch clamps. I'm, as, I'm assuming I don't have that much detail, but it's it, the literature says that it shut down on the pad. This shutdown triggered the LES to fire. I don't know if that's intentional or not. You'd think shutdown could be indicative of imminent explosion but if it's a successful shutdown it, it it definitely isn't um so anyway the les uh triggered and uh va's uh, 103 i believe i'm assuming 103 was on the top but which <laughs> whichever one was on the top sorry this is so ambiguous whichever one was <laughs> on the top successfully aborted uh and like these aborts i said 15 g's they actually land like a kilometer or two away. Like this is, this is an intense flight. Um, however, in this case, it flew a kilometer or two and did not deploy its parachute. So it slammed into the ground. Really glad to not have people on that one. So they took a month, uh, a month's worth of breathing space, uh, did some additional work on the, uh, on the proton and they installed two more VAs. And for these, I only have their Cosmos designations. Uh, this would be 1100 and 1101, 1100 and 1101. It's, it's bad. I don't have <laughs> a good way to pronounce this. Uh, 1100 and 1101. What is that? Is that 16 in binary, right? That would be. Oh, one, two, four, try. eight. So eight plus four, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So that's 12 and 13. Can we just refer to them as, as 12 and 13? Maybe we should convert into hex. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Death can beat me to it. This is uh, uh, C and D in hex. <laughs> All right. Oh, oh, actually, I spoke too early. Uh, I, did, I, I did actually find the serial numbers. This is 102P and 102L. These are the same vehicles that flew on LVI-3 successfully. So how nice is that? LVI-3 flies, has a successful flight. LVI-4 gets the pad. Um, the top falls off violently. 
And they're like, okay, well, we got to put something on this. Well, why don't we put the ones that just had a successful flight? So they put those on. Uh, and the launch was successful a month later. However, I, I believe the plan was to do a staggered landing, one after one orbit and then the other one after two orbits. Well, one of them had an electrical failure and did not land correctly after two orbits. The other one landed successfully after a single orbit. I believe what happened is it successfully deorbited and then crashed. I don't believe it stayed on orbit longer than it should have. I could totally be wrong. The literature is limited. It's early Soviet space history. So so that was the end of the LVIs. There were um, additional uh, TKS missions, but I don't believe any of them were crewed. It, it gets a little fuzzy because they were plan they they were planning to do crewed missions, um, but like there were like two or three different branches of potential history. One involved uh, crude flights uh, and Almaz docking sequences. And then they scrapped that one and went to a different alternate history where um, it was just, you know, three people in a vehicle uh, and they had backup crews assigned, but it was just free flights. Uh, it, it really kind of jumps around. But I think in the end, um, they never flew crude flights. Um, I'm pretty certain of that, yeah. That, that they didn't, yeah. And like one of the later alternate histories wasn't set until 1982, so like quite a while later. Um, and it had happened a after the Salyut program uh, was up and running. So like really it just, it, it gets crazy. Um, Salyut 7's issues made it even crazier. Uh, they wind up flying Soyuz's instead of TKS's and it, it it really turns into a muddle. Um, Dennis was kind enough to pull some photos out of a book uh, that show um, the the whole like evolutionary history of TKS as well as OPSDOS. Um, Dennis, did you have anything that you wanted to point out on these guys uh, that would help bring some no, light just to the that, situation? Well, just just that I thought it was so cool. Uh, you already touched on the fact that this. I didn't realize just how incredible the Russians were, or I should say the Soviets were at space stations. You know, they, they really were masters of them. And I don't know if I've ever actually explicitly thought about it that way, because, yeah, they had a lot of salutes, but they had a lot of salutes and they did different things with them. And they had crews sh uh, shuffling between multiple stations on a single mission and just that slow process of iterating and building on it which involved some of the tks hardware right the fgb functional cargo block that's still you already mentioned that it's still on station today and it was also uh, modified versions of those made up mirror really and so i i never quite drew these older concepts to mirror or the space station before and i just think that's really neat how there's a, a family uh, polius is even part of this family tree this phylogeny. What's crazy is like we tend to brush off Soviet space as uh, dangerous and clunky, but I, I think really what it comes down to is they were good enough to have as few failures as they did, as few like on orbit incidents. But mm. all we wind up seeing is the incidents and we forget all of the successes. Yes, this was a military program. So, of course, these things feel like submarines. 
and they're uncomfortable and they're, you know, cramped and stinky. And well, I guess even, even modern, uh, space flight is pretty stinky, but like, yeah, like this, this is all military. So we shouldn't expect to see, you know, crew dragon style interiors or even, um, space shuttle style interiors. And when, when, you know, if you do your best to compare apples to apples, like, yeah, you know, they, they really were space station masters. And I really hope that that mastery isn't lost today. Like, I hope that the fact that we're still flying so much the same hardware is a testament to how good the hardware is and not a testament to the fact that the innovation is decreasing. And I realize this, you know, sometimes I feel like I, I throw out so many things that it's tough to digest. But I think it's just really cool. Just just remember, Salute has given rise to Zvezda currently on station. And the FGB part of TKS has given rise to Zarya and Nauka on station, plus all the mirror modules. I, I just think that's just so cool. That That's a great kicker because like this information is so hard to present. And I don't think that I presented it in a very um, coherent way. I would like to argue that that is a good way to present it because it was chaotic um, and it is a complicated history. So like maybe, maybe the summary of it being chaotic and difficult to understand is, you know, giving you the flavor <laughs> of, of the, uh, of the original literature. But yeah, I, I really like that. That that's a good, uh, a good kicker at the end there. All right. Well, that's your This Week in Spaceflight History for this week. Cosmos 881 and 882 flying one on top of the other like two kids in a trench coat. <laughs> I, I am so delighted with this imagery. I think it's just wonderful. All right. Uh, so next week is the 21st through the 27th of December. And Dennis, it, you are presenting it next week. So do you have a clue? I do. Uh, next week in 1979... Some Vikings and their kitty cat. <laughs> All right. If you think you recognize these Vikings and their kitty cats, shoot us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. So now on to upcoming spaceflight events. It looks like we've got, uh, we got a lot of launches. We got a lot of launches. <laughs> we got one, two, three, four. Is that six? Uh, it's a lot. First, we've got a uh, Chinese launch, the Kuaizhou 1A rocket. Um, this will be taking place Wednesday, December 15th. We do not have a description of the payload, so it sounds like this is uh, classified or it's unclear what's going to be happening exactly. Well, well and... Kuaizhou is, uh, is a military observation satellite, I believe. And what what's the, the date is coming from a NOTAM, so we don't even know if it's this vehicle, mm. um, but presumably it is. It, the correlation seems to work, or the... the it seems like this was the next one in the in the launch order, so I think it's pretty fair to to correlate the NOTAM with this vehicle. Okay, copy that. Thank you. So yeah, so so keep an eye out for this then with a with a grain of salt. So uh, again, that's Wednesday, December fifteenth, with a window from o two twelve to o two forty eight UTC, and this will be flying out of Jiuquan, which is in Inner Mongolia, uh, in China. All right after that, we do know what's flying. Uh, it will be a Falcon Nine Block Five flying TurkSat Five B. Um, we've talked about 
a number of Turksats, I believe. Um, it's a geostationary communication satellite um, that centers on Turkey and the Middle East. Um, and so uh, Turksat will be flying on Sunday, December 19th at 0458 UTC. Looks like it's an instantaneous launch window, which seems a little odd for a geo payload, but maybe they're going straight to Geo. And then next up, we have our only uh, non-launch event of the week, and this is going to be uh, coverage of essentially MS uh, Soyuz MS-20 taking off. And so uh, this was the mission with cosmonaut Alexander Mazurkin, uh, taking uh, Maezawa Yusaku and Hirono Yozo to the station for a good uh, week and change, which uh, if you want to see some pretty cool images as well as just some delightful enjoyment of being on space you can check out my Zawa's twitter uh, where uh, he was posting a lot of good stuff and so yeah. in any event on december 19th we have the uh, at 3 p.m eastern is when the coverage of the farewells and the hatch closing for the soyuz will begin and then at 6.30 p.m. Eastern, coverage of the undocking will begin. And at 9 p.m. Eastern, coverage of the deorbit burn and ultimate landing in Kazakhstan. With the uh, deorbit burn scheduled for 9.15 p.m. and the landing scheduled for 10.18 p.m. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out because I didn't see any of those photos or videos. Mm. He's got he's got one of just them approaching the station, which is another one of these just beautiful, crystal clear views mm -hmm. of the station, which is great. After that, um, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5, this time flying Dragon CRS-2, also known as SpaceX-24 or SPX-24. Um, this is the 24th commercial resupply mission for the Dragon, and that will be launching on Tuesday the 21st at 10.06 UTC. And that we know is instantaneous because it's going to, going to ISS. Um, that will be rendezvousing with the station after next week's show. So we'll tell you about it next week. And just a few hours after that, we have a launch from Japan. And so this is an H2A204 that will be taking Inmarsat 6 F1, which is the sixth generation of Inmarsat. You know, this is, this, these are British uh, uh, global satellite communication uh, satellites. And so uh, again, right, this is December 21st. Uh, Tuesday, and it has a window for launch from 1433.52 UTC to 1633.26 UTC. And being an H2A, it'll be flying out of Tanegashima in Japan. So this is going to be happening after next week's show, but just barely. This is Wednesday early morning uh, in the US. So we wanted to include it just to give you as much heads up as possible, because this is a good one. Um, you previously said that the uh, MS-20 uh, undocking was going to be our only non-launch event. I'm really hoping that this is a launch event and not a non-launch event. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> but on Wednesday, December 22nd at 1220 UTC, an Ariane 5 ECA Plus is going to be flying the James Webb Space Telescope. And the crowd breaks into applause. Actually, no, don't. Don't applaud. We don't want to jinx it. <laughs> we want this one to go. Let's give it every chance we can. So you can totally just tune in for the launch. Honestly, I'm still probably going to be asleep. Uh, however, no, the, the launch is actually going to happen at 7.20 a.m. Eastern time. So I will be just uh, getting through my first cup of coffee at that point. Um, mm -hmm. But. 
if you happen to be an early riser or you happen to be in a part of the world that is temporally advantageous, you should definitely tune in to NASA TV earlier that morning. They're going to have a lot of coverage. Wednesday morning at 3 a.m., they're going to be doing coverage of the go, no go for Ariane 4 fueling. The fueling should be concluded by 3.15 or the go, no go, I guess, should be concluded by 3.15. Um, then they're going to switch over to uh, like B-roll footage of JWST itself, as well as launch pad views um, until we get up to 3.30 a.m. Eastern time, which is when they're going to be doing uh, the, they're going to switch over to rendezvous and docking of CRS 24. I know I said we weren't going to talk about this week, but oops, I just did. Um, <laughs> once that is done, they will be switching back to, uh, B roll and launch pad views until, uh, the launch. So I guess this isn't actually that much coverage because most of it's just B roll. So, mm. uh, maybe wake up as early as you can. Watch the go, no go to find out if anything's going to happen and then <laughs> hit the little red live button to jump up to the launch. Um, so again, the, the launch is happening this, uh, December 22nd, which is Wednesday at 1220, uh, hours UTC. It, it, the window goes up to 1250 hours UTC, uh, for Americans like me who cannot handle time zones. That will be, uh, 6 a.m. Oh, I'm sorry. That's uh, 7.20 a.m. Eastern time is when the, the beginning of the launch window starts all the way up to 7.50 a.m. I can be fairly confident in that conversion. Um, they will be going to more in-depth coverage on NASA TV at 6 a.m. Eastern time, uh, which uh, ho hopefully will be better than just B-roll and uh, web highlights. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there you go. JWST. Hopefully going to be flying so cool. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to deorbit the show. We'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 Nut Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction brands on the fly. A special shout out this week to Deathkin, Fiery Dawn, Noteboatsma, Mike Stewart, uh, and Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you so much, you guys. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, we will see you all next time on Orbit. See you.